If you will uh, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, we're actually, I spilled up here, we're actually going to read the whole chapter today. Um, this is a chapter that often gets broken up into pieces, but it's most powerfully understood if you read it all together as Jesus spoke it. So, um, Matthew chapter 18. While you're turning there, I, I just want to say a few things. First of all, next Sunday is Easter Sunday. And we're excited about that. Um, we want to make sure we have room for everybody. So, if next Sunday you can like move forward and over, that would be good. Because, you know, there's, I, I've been this person, I'm sure you had this happen like you're coming in right as service starts or you're coming in five minutes after service starts or you got talking in the lobby and you're 10 minutes after service starts we want people not having to like walk through and find seats we want them to be able to find seats real easy right back by the doors okay so next sunday if we move forward and over that would be great um after our service today is family time so family time is good food Yes, we're excited about that over here. And just a chance to connect. And what we're going to be doing, um, on our tables, every table is going to have one of these post-it notes. Okay? And we're going to put on, we praise God because, and then you can just fill it up with words and drawings of what you praise God for. Because after all, this is Palm Sunday, right? And they're post-its, so we're going to stick them in the walls going down towards the children's wing in the hallway there. And we're going to have those on the wall for Easter Sunday, okay? So that's what we're going to do during family time. And we'll have the games and the train table and all in here for kids too. So, all right. Matthew chapter 18. Um, is It's not the Palm Sunday passage. <laughs> um, Palm Sunday, I always have... Different feelings about Palm Sunday because it's this very joyous occasion that we celebrate when Jesus was welcomed into Jerusalem as king. And yet five days later, the same people rejected him and were shouting crucify him. And so it's kind of this like very joyous and yet very sober day. And I always think, why did they reject him just five days later? Well, if you read the Palm Sunday passage, Pastor Eric read it at the very beginning of the service. Jesus is welcomed in and people are waving their branches and saying, Hosanna, which means save. They're saying, save us, save us. And then the first thing he does is he goes into the temple and gets really mad. And he's mad at the priests and at the merchants because... People are bringing their sacrifices to God and the priests and merchants are telling people your sacrifice isn't good enough. And you can't bring that lamb or that dove. You, you No, you have to buy this one because that one's not acceptable. You have to buy this one. And they were like just charging exorbitant prices. It was extortion. They basically were extorting people trying to come and worship God. And Jesus gets mad. He flips over tables. He drives them all out. And this is not what people were expecting was going to happen. They wanted to be saved from Romans. Not their Jewish leaders. And so when I think about Palm Sunday, 
to me, kind of the moral of the story is, do you welcome Jesus as king only when he confronts your enemies? Or do you also welcome him when he confronts you? In the passage we're reading today, Matthew 18 is one where Jesus, he kind of confronts us as king. Because he comes to us as a king, not a genie, not as our puppet. He comes to us as king, not to do our bidding, but so that we can do his. And are we willing to accept that? And are we willing to do his bidding? In Matthew chapter 18, he talks about what his bidding is. And it's probably not what you think, which for me is always a good thing. Because whenever I think about the expectations I think God puts on me, that's like this crazy high bar I can never achieve. And then when I read his word, it's actually kind of a relief. So that's what we're going to read. Matthew chapter 18. This is God's word. It's the word of life. So let's read it together. Okay. Matthew 18 verse 1. At that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called the little child to him. This would have been like a toddler, like one, one and a half, maybe two. He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And Jesus goes on to talk about how protective he is of his little children. And he, he's not just meaning little children. He's meaning anyone who comes to him humbly and believes in him with a faith of like a little child. Verse 6. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believes in me, to stumble... It would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands and two feet And be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye and have, than have two eyes and and be thrown into the fire of hell. Now Jesus is using exaggeration to make a point. Hyperbole. If you have an anger problem and you strike someone, cutting off your hand is probably not gonna solve that anger problem, right? No. If you struggle with lust and you gouge out an eye, that's not going to solve the lust problem. Those, those things come from the heart. Jesus is using hyperbole to make a point. Our sin hurts people. And when we sin, it puts a stumbling block to them coming to God 
because they think God has abandoned them or God doesn't care or maybe he doesn't even exist because why would he let these painful things happen, right? And Jesus says, make sure you don't have any sin that's causing others to stumble. Verse 10, next verse. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. That's where we get the belief in guardian angels is from this verse right here. But no, he's not just talking about little children. He's talking about all who believe in him and who have that kind of humble faith in him. They, they all, we all have guardian angels. Verse 12, what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that has wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish Jesus is talking about his priorities here. Let me, let me state another way. If you have five children and four of them are tucked in in bed at home, but one of them is lost, what is your focus on? The lost one, right? That's all you can think about. It's not that you don't care about the four that are home, but they're safe. Right? They're safe. And so your mind is consumed with going after and finding the lost child. And that's how Jesus is. He says, for everyone who's come to me, who's been part of my family, when they go astray, when they are lost, that's all he cares about. It's not that he doesn't love the ones who are found. But that's what his priority is on. Now let me take it. Just a step forward. If you have that lost child, and then you find out someone has been blocking your child from coming home, what do you do to that person? You see what Jesus is saying here. You see why he says it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Like, you you don't mess with that. He is very protective. He's very protective of all of us. And then he says in the next verse, verse 15, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Why does he transition from talking about going after the lost sheep, the lost lamb, to um, reconciling with your brother or sister in Christ? I think there's, there's two reasons that he makes this transition. One is that as Christians, our inability to get along puts stumbling blocks to people coming to Jesus. When people see Christians fighting and bickering, we do not reflect Jesus well. 
And people will stay away from church. They'll stay away from the family of God because of that. I think the other reason Jesus makes this transition, talking from chasing after that one lost sheep, is because when your brother or sister sins, they are lost. And he wants you to chase after them like a lost sheep. Not chase after them to prove to them how wrong they are because they did you wrong and they need to know it. But chase after them like a parent chases after a long lost child. Because they're his lost child and he loves them and we need to bring him back. That's what he's talking about. And the first step is to go to them alone. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. This is not venting to other people first. I've searched the Bible for a biblical rationale for venting, and it's not there. (laughs) It's called gossip. The venting we see in the Bible is venting to God. There's all kinds of psalms and laments of people pouring out their discouragement, their anger, their frustration to God. He is the one who is big enough to handle it. He's the one who can actually do something about it. You take that to him. You process it with him. But when we go to one another and like, oh, they're so... That's gossip. It's not venting. It's gossip. And it makes it nearly impossible for someone to come home. The family or a church has been gossiping about... The way someone else has been acting makes it impossible for that person to own up to it and to be welcomed back. So you go to them first alone. Just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along. So every matter may be established by the testimony of two to three witnesses. Um, He's talking about an intervention here. And there's two types of intervention. One, I think, is um, if somebody has wronged you, you go and talk to them first alone about it, not to prove their wrongness. How you start that conversation makes a big difference in how it ends. If you start the conversation saying, look, I love you. I know our relationship's not what it should be. And I want to figure out how we can get back to where we need to be. And you go in listening. That conversation's going to go much better than if you go in saying, look, you did me wrong. But if that first conversation, you can't reconcile take along it says one to two others and they should be neutral people that the other person respects too and you have to be willing for them not only to speak to that other person but to speak some truth into your life because there's a good chance that you might have some fault as well that's one kind of intervention the other kind of intervention is probably what you know of more is like when someone 
is engaged in a sin that's destructive, like um, an addiction or whatever, and you bring a couple people along and you have an intervention. This can be referring to that. But if they will not listen, take along one or two others, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two to three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. This is when... you get your pastor, church leaders involved. I'm always amazed at the times that people call me and say, hey, will you go talk to someone? And they've never even talked to the person themselves. And, um, and parents especially do that with their children. And, and I'm like, look, you have to talk to them first yourself. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, I've often heard it taught that um, what that means is if the person doesn't repent and they're just like, no, I'm, you know, I'm doing no wrong and they're going to just continue sinning, um, you disassociate with the person. Have any of you guys heard that before? Jesus doesn't say disassociate. He says treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Did Jesus associate with pagans and tax collectors? Oh, yeah, a lot, actually. He was well known for it, for going to parties with pagans and tax collectors and prostitutes. So I don't think this means disassociate. I think what this means is that um, you treat them as Jesus treated tax collectors and pagans, where he loved on them, but he also spoke truth to them. I think we need to tell people, you know, I love you, but what you're doing is walking away from Jesus. Sometimes people just need to be straight up told that. Because we often deceive ourselves, don't we? And we think that what we're doing, there's, there's no problem with. And God is fine with it. So we need to be told that. And, you know, I think we don't put expectations on them. We don't expect them to act like a believer anymore. But most of all, I think it means we pray for them like we would a pagan or a tax collector. We pray for them like we would a lost lamb. And I think that's exactly what Jesus speaks to next. Verse 18. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. This this passage is used out of context a lot. Um, first of all, Jesus is with you no matter where you go. Like, you don't need two pe- or three other people to be with you for Jesus to be there. All right? Um, he promises that in other places in Scripture. And um, we we also know that, like, two people just can't pray for anything they want and it automatically be done. God just doesn't work that way. Right? The context of this passage is going after the lost lamb. 
That's the context. And remember, the second step of reconciliation is taking one to two others, right? So that's the two to three that he's talking about. If as that group that tried that intervention, the two to three of you, you pray for that lost person. Jesus is with you and he is fighting the battle in the spiritual realm that you can't see. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Jesus is going to do that for you. And some of you, I know you have lost children or lost family members, and maybe you need to do some binding and loosing. And Jesus promises that he'll stand with you and fight with you when you do that. As Jesus has been teaching, Peter has been processing this. And um, he comes to Jesus, the next verse, 21, and says, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And he's, he's like sincere. He's like seriously processing this. Because the Pharisees in that day, they taught that if somebody sins against you, you, could, you were obligated to forgive them three times. And then after three times, no, they, you know, it's literally a three strikes and you're out system. And so Peter is processing this, what Jesus is saying about how important it is to reconcile and how important it is to forgive so that there's no stumbling blocks to coming for people to coming back to Jesus. And he's like, okay, uh, let's double it plus one. Seven times. And Jesus is like, no, no, you're still not getting it. Verse 22, Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. In other words, enough times that you're not counting anymore. And then Jesus tells this parable to illustrate how the king wants us to forgive. And Holden is going to come and read the parable for us. He and Mindy Maples worked on this together. So he's going to be reading verses Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brothers or sisters who sin against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I'll tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, a kingdom of the heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, the man who owed him ten thousand bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, and I'll pay it all back. The servant master took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. 
But when the servant master, but when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged, Be patient with me, and I'll pay it all back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what happened, they were outraged and went to tell their master everything that happened. The master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should, he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Thank you, Holden. Um, in your Bibles, it probably has a heading like the parable of the unmerciful servant. But I think this parable is actually more about the king than the servant. You think of the mercy of the king that he forgave 10,000 bags of gold. I don't even have a frame of reference for that. I mean, do you, like, can you even imagine 10,000 bags of gold? Like how much that is? Guys, do you realize God has forgiven us of more than we can even fathom? I think of the mercy of God that the vast majority of our sins, he never even brings to our attention. Because if he did, we would just be so overwhelmed. He just like brings enough that we realize we need a savior. But he has forgiven us so much. He is so merciful with us. And so he just doesn't get it when we're not merciful with each other. He just doesn't get it. He has a zero tolerance policy for that kind of stuff. And it's interesting because the the one servant who who wouldn't forgive the other servant, um, the other servant owed him a decent amount of money. It was about maybe three months worth. That's like not pennies. That's significant, right? And yet when we realize how much God has forgiven us of, or we even start to try to comprehend it, we just realize we have no choice but to forgive. And to be merciful, just as he's merciful with us. There's been times um, in my life where I've struggled with forgiveness. How many of you know it's harder to forgive the people closest to you? Yeah. 
Yeah, because they're the ones you trust. They're the ones you become most vulnerable with. And they're the ones you have higher expectations of. And, um, you know, I think some of us, we can think, oh, we're great at forgiving people until it's somebody that really is close to us. And there's been times I've had to pray, God, I can't forgive them because I'm not that good. But I need your forgiveness for that. Give me your forgiveness for that. And he's always answered that prayer. You see, ultimately, forgiveness comes from the king. It's not even ours to dole out. It's his resource. And we just have to pass it along. We receive it and we pass it along. And so today, I want you to check your hearts about any unforgiveness. And we have a place of prayer back by the cross. Maybe you need to grab somebody and go back there together. Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's a spouse. And pray together. Um, We have different ways. I know, like, different things help different people. So there's paper where you can write down your sin and then on the altar you can burn it before the Lord and just release it to Him. Maybe two of you need just to kind of go and write down how this is what I've done, this is what I've done, and you take it to the altar of the Lord and you burn it together and you're done with it. Maybe... A couple of you need to go. There's a kneeling bench right in front of the cross and just um, do some binding and loosing. (laughs) Because there's a lost lamb in your life. And God wants you to go after him. Or maybe you just need to pray to be filled with God's heart of mercy. I think... um, The more we're hurt, the more we build up walls. And those walls, we think they protect, but they actually isolate. And forgiveness doesn't mean trusting. I want to be clear about that. Forgiveness doesn't mean um, that you lend more to the person. (laughs) It means you release the debt. You release the anger and you let God heal you. And also the other person. But my friends, there's no way to welcome the king of mercy without being merciful. That is what he requires of us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we praise you because of who you are. That you have this unlimited source of love and this unlimited source of mercy that we can't even comprehend. And God, we pray that you help us to be like you. God, 
We pray that instead of being so focused on ourselves and what has been done to us and what our rights are and everything, we will be focused on those who are lost, just as you are. God, I pray you bring those people to our minds. Teach us how to go after them as you go after them. Not in an air of judgment, or superiority but to go after them like a shepherd goes after a lost sheep like you our father go after us when we're lost we go after them because they are valuable and Holy Spirit I just pray you pave that way and Spirit I, I pray you speak to all who believed that they can't come back. Who are burdened with some kind of guilt or shame or they just think they don't belong anymore. God, I pray you break through to them. And help them realize there is always room for more in the family of God and they are welcomed. God, I pray you help us create safe spaces for people to come back to you. Heavenly Father, um, I know that right now there are some people who have lost family members. And um, and your word in the, in the Old Testament talks about praying hedges of protection around people so that they can't go after the sin that is destroying their lives. And so in the name of Jesus, we pray pray a hedge of protection around those people that they will be bound and not be able to chase after the destructive things in their lives God I pray in the name of Jesus that you open their eyes to you and to your goodness and to the wisdom of your ways that you call us to life and to life that overflows and joy and peace and they'll see that God and they will taste and see that you are good and that they will desire you, Lord. I pray that for all of us, that we will desire you and that we will welcome you no matter what. Not only when you confront our enemies, but even when you confront us. Above all, God, we will always welcome you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.